Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. Coming at you in this first week of December 2018, our last month of uh, the winter of our somewhat content. (laughs) This podcast is brought to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And this week, um, I have had over the years a number of requests, quite a few, uh, to tell my story of escape from Scientology. Uh, I was involved with Scientology for decades, uh, actually most of my life, ever since I was uh, four when my my parents first got involved. And I have told the story of how I got recruited, how I worked on staff in Santa Barbara, California, and then I moved to Los Angeles when I joined the Sea Organization and worked there for 17 years and then uh, finally left the Sea Org in 2012, eventually to leave Scientology altogether in 2013. So that's the framework of the story, but now gather around, boys and girls, let's get around the campfire here, and, and I will tell you a story about me. I have talked about lots of parts of this in different places, so if you've watched all my content or listened to everything I've ever had to say, and I don't think there's a lot of you out there who've done that, but if you have, then you are going to know most of this. But for those of you who don't or are new to my channel, this is how I got out of Scientology. The, it was a long, it's a, it's a long story. There's a lot to it. It was not a, there was no one moment where it all coalesced and it all came together and suddenly I saw the light in this epiphany, it didn't didn't really work like that. It was a series of realizations or, um, or moments in time that were significant that contributed to breaking down the walls of belief or the prison of belief that I was stuck in. And um, I had come to accept uh, certain pieces of information from my parents as true that were not true. Um, Like any child who's raised with religion in a household, they don't learn to judge or question those beliefs that are being given to them or fed to them until much, much later. And because of the number of, of positive reinforcements through my parents, and their friends and all the people we were surrounded with during the whole time I was growing up. And then during my really very formative years as a high schooler, as a teenager, getting involved with Scientology head on and doing classes and and, uh, trying to use it in my life and attributing everything good in my life to Scientology, because that's how you're trained, that's what you're indoctrinated to do. Anything that's good that's happening to you is because of Scientology, and anything that's bad that's happening to you is definitely on you. It's your fault. Um, so I, this was kind of uh, the mindset that I was in through all of my childhood and teenage years, and then I'd had a period of questioning and somewhat uh, some antagonism toward my parents about Scientology. But then once I started going and doing classes myself, that all went away and I fully got on the, the uh, you know, crazy train, so to speak. Um, so, so right out of high school, I joined staff and, and like I said, I was working in Santa Barbara. 
So those years were difficult. Logistically, they were difficult for me to, to make a living with other jobs and still work at the church and or org, I'll call it. I'm not going to call them a church. I'll call it an org because that's what they call it. And, um, and working at the Santa Barbara Org was often frustrating for a number of reasons. I did not have, you know, much in the way of, of girlfriends or, or opportunities for much, much, much of that. Um, I, I never really did the social scene. I never really got hooked up with or connected with that. And I was very, you know, so I was leading a pretty insular, isolated existence as a Scientologist and doing work outside of there to make money, but I wasn't making a lot of friends outside of Scientology either, girlfriends or otherwise. So, um, so my life was, was, you know, pretty much just very Scientology oriented. And I kind of had the idea that I was working so much that joining the Sea Org wasn't really going to be that big of a change. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong about that. So I joined the Sea Org in, in 1995 and uh, moved to Los Angeles and immediately was put on the job of the Assistant Technical Aid for the Western United States. The A-Tech Aid, West US, uh, was the official abbreviated version of that long post title. Um, basically, that job put me over seeing all of the delivery of Scientology for all of the Western United States. This included all the way out to St. Louis and Minnesota, to Seattle and Hawaii, and all of the orgs in California, like everything. Sea Org orgs, which are manned by Sea Org members, which are upper-level orgs where upper-level services are delivered. Uh, everything west of the Mississippi that was being that that had Scientology delivery connected to it with an org, not the missions or the field groups, but the orgs, felt under me, my my purview, my sphere of influence, and my job was to get these orgs delivering lots of auditing and lots of training, and uh, and I got thrown right into it. I mean, I was I was uh, the way we communicated from the from the management level with the organizations was by telexes and dispatches. That's how we were supposed to run the orgs, but we were on the phones to them all the time, despite clear-cut Hubbard policy that we were not to do that. The day I walked in to start work in the, in the Continental Liaison Office with the CLO, that was where I worked. That was the name of the organization where I worked. It, it's the management organization for um, Scientology for the Western United States. The day I walked in there, the head of the management unit that I was going to work in, which was called the FOLO, and you don't have, you're not going to get tested on any of this. I'm just throwing this terminology out here so you know that there's a lot of terminology in Scientology. So I was working, uh, there's a, so I was working in a subdivision of the CLO called the FOLO, F-O-L-O, -O, or the Flag Operations Liaison Office. And I'm not going to explain the entire structure of all that because I already did that in a video, which you guys can see. I'll link to it in the description to this podcast. Um, so if you want to get the whole organizational structure, you can watch that video and get that. Um, so I'm working in this subunit and, uh, and I have this job. And I'm told, you got to get these guys delivering lots of hours of auditing. That's how it's counted every week is hours of auditing or counseling and student points. So when, when people do classes in Scientology, they are assigned an, a point system for the number of tasks that they do while they're studying. 
Read a page, that's 10 points. Do a little demonstration, that's two points. Do a demonstration in clay, that's 50 points. You know, you get points for all these things. And the total number of all of the student points from all the students all over the Western United States was my statistic, that and the well-done auditing hours, and another statistic called the value of services delivered, which was the total monetary value of all the auditing and all the training that was delivered in all the orgs in the West U.S. for that week. So these stats were being kept at the org level. Each org had their VSD and their well-done auditing hours and their student points. And um, those were their major delivery statistics. And so I added up the total of all of it from all the orgs, and that was my statistic. Now, I wasn't on the ground delivering classes, and I wasn't there auditing people. So how was I supposed to get my statistics up? Well, I learned quickly that I was supposed to get on the phones and, and call these orgs. That was, like I said, when I walked in on day one, the, the, the commanding officer of the FOLO uh, was on the phone. <laughs> Right, typing a telex to the person she was literally talking to, uh, telling them, you know, to get their stats up and they better get moving or there's going to be hell to pay and taka 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 now, now, now. And I got indoctrinated into this sort of frantic way of life that was Sea Org management, uh, where it was, you know, you, you better get those stats up and you better get things moving, and that's your job, and there are no excuses, and there is no reason why you can't do it, and there's no training required. You just get to work. Now, of course, they do train you, but that's not, not being trained is not an excuse to not get your job done, basically, is what the point I'm trying to get across here. That wasn't just for me, that was for everybody. And uh, so I got kind of thrown into the right off. And uh, I was definitely in a sink or swim situation and I was not going to sink. So I started working and, um, and I did that for a long time. I did that for uh, eight years. I was in the management section there overseeing all of this delivery. And uh, there were a lot of ups and downs. I actually busted out my life history today and was looking it over to look at some of the dates and jobs and things that I did because I was, you know, 17 years is a long time to account for all that, that stuff. And, uh, um, and it was interesting to see my memory is still pretty intact on most of that stuff. So eight years working as the A tech aide. And during the um, later part of my time on that job, and this was the first sort of thing that, that, that really threw me, that really got me thinking that, you know, being in the Sea Org maybe isn't such, the, such a great thing to do, right? I was very worn down after eight years of this. And, um, and I think it was um, in the seventh year that the Ideal Org program started. Uh, and it was not even, I don't know if it was even called that to start with. I think it was called the Buffalo Pattern or the Buffalo Project. Uh, as I've explained in other videos, that was because it was based on what was done with the Church of Scientology in Buffalo. And they had, they'd bought a new building, they had renovated it at great expense, and Buffalo was this, you know, great place now. And they got all the, the Scientologists in the Buffalo area all excited and, and hotted up and joining staff and all this other stuff. So we were supposed to replicate that in all of the orgs. And San Francisco was the first org in the West U.S. that we were giving this new treatment to. Where we it was in a it was in the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. There were 
homeless people right, uh, you know, literally going to the bathroom in the doorway of the org where it was located. I mean, it was in a bad part of town. They were not making money. They were not doing well. It was a four-story building I think they owned uh, or had a good lease on, but we wanted to get them into this, you know, they, a building was selected for them to move into, and it was going to get renovated, and then they were going to move into it. This was before Scientology kind of learned what they were doing with all of this. There were no outside vendors or contractors or uh, people being hired to do the architectural plans. All of it was being done in-house, and we were figuring it all out as we were going. I say we and as in the Sea Org. I wasn't directly working on San Francisco. What happened was everybody else was. <laughs> the entire, almost the entirety of management, almost the whole of the CLO and a, and a bunch of other people were, were sent to San Francisco to actually literally hands-on do the renovations, do the work necessary to get the building prepped and in shape. And they had a bunch of, you know, stuff from international management on um, how the building was supposed to look and, and how to, you know, all the, the plans and everything had been drawn up uh, by international management. But we were supposed to go there and get this place built. And, it was and there was a very specific deadline. There was a lot of pressure. This was a new thing. Nobody had ever done anything like this before. Um, and that... Um, was a was a really big deal. Now I had earlier, before this whole thing had gone down, um, I'm actually sort of altering the sequence a little bit here. Before that whole thing went down with San Francisco, I had gone down to San Diego and had done a project to recruit auditors for San Diego. We were supposed to have every single org was supposed to have 20 auditors. That was what was, if you had 20 auditors auditing full-time, that was supposed to give you a great deal of viability, pay the staff a lot of money, everybody's doing great, people are going up the bridge, going to clear, everybody's happy. That was sort of the, 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 the must-be-done target for each org to accomplish. And we had been working on this 20 auditors thing for years and years, and none of the orgs in the West U.S. had pulled it off. So I went down to San Diego on a little project, and I, in three weeks, we actually got 20 auditors recruited for that place. And it was kind of this legendary project. It was, a, it was you know, nobody had ever pulled this off before in anywhere in the West U.S. We did it in San Diego, and concurrently, they did the same thing in Mountain View. And that was a really great thing. When I went down to San Diego, I wasn't yelling and screaming at anybody. I wasn't, like, having some tirades at the staff. I was encouraging them and telling them, hey guys, we can do this. And I, I, could, I did the first one myself just to show that it could be done. We recruited this public person that they had been working on and she wouldn't do it and wouldn't do it and wouldn't do it. And I showed up in my Sea Org uniform and said, hey, you know, we really need you to do this. It's, it's really time to step up and we're going to make this thing happen. And she then decided to sign a staff contract and everybody just fell all over themselves because uh, they couldn't believe I pulled that off. And I, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal, but I was like, yeah, of course I did, you know. And uh, they uh, then saw that I meant business and I was for real and I could help them actually make this happen. And we then got to work and we did 20 auditors. When I got back to the management unit, back to the FOLO, I was really hot to get this done, what we had done in San Diego and what had been done in Mountain View. 
I wanted to get that done in all the orgs because that was kind of my area, right? Auditing and auditors. Like you can't get, you know, well done auditing hours going up statistically if you don't have auditors who are auditing. So I wanted to go out to the other orgs and do the same thing. Well, that got crushed right away. And then I did a whole write-up on everything that we did in San Diego. And I wanted to get that write-up out to all the orgs so they could do it. And uh, within two days of that being, uh, it was pages long write-up of all the things we did that were successful. And people out in these orgs wanted this information. They had heard about what happened in San Diego and Mountain View. And they were like, well, they could do it. We can do it. I mean, this was a real moment. And, um, and they wanted to know how to do it. So, you know, I did this write-up, sent it out there, and within two days, it got yanked. And the directions from upline were, uh, from our management body, down to us, was um, just tell them to do the birthday game. That's it. Take, cancel Shelton's write-up. That's not according to any policy, even though I cited numerous policies. We had done everything according to, you know, various L. Ron Hubbard policies, but um, we had just done it with a, with a, a, a vim and vigor and, and excitement that had, had brought, really brought it all to life. I mean, San Diego was on fire, and San Diego was this podunk little place that really wasn't doing much of anything, and we went there and did this thing, and they were, they were just out of their heads. They were so excited. So I, you know, so I really knew that this could work, and I knew that we could make this happen in all the other orgs. So when I got those orders to cancel all that, and I wasn't allowed to go out to any of the other orgs, and I wasn't going to get 20 auditors anywhere else, I saw very, very clearly that after, you know, seven years of, 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 of beating my head against a wall, sending telexes, sending dispatches, doing all this work, trying to get these orgs to get their stats up and make something productive happen there, you know, that we finally did something successful, and then it gets yanked, and I'm told, you know, no big deal, whatever. And I just sort of saw suddenly with clarity all this management craziness that I've been doing for the last seven years doesn't amount to a hill of beans. These guys, we're, what we're doing isn't working, and it's never going to work. It's, it's chaos here. It's a madhouse of orders and cross orders and more orders and this senior telling you know telling you something different from this senior and RTC of all people you know running around giving us direct orders which was not at all what they were supposed to be doing because I'd read the issues on RTC and you know the, the religious technology center this is David Miscavige's organization they were giving us all these orders and we were like why are we getting orders from RTC but we they were so senior we didn't have any choice but to comply but it was weird it wasn't according to any setup that we were supposed to be doing. And I was in the middle of this, and it was just this chaotic mess. And, and we, were, we were, you know, constantly working from one emergency to the next to the next. So when I finally got out and did something really productive and then came back and was told, what you did doesn't really matter, and not only that, but we're not going to allow you to do the same thing in all the other orgs. Like I said, that moment of clarity kind of came shining through, and I realized that all of this activity and all these orders and cross orders and everything else was just to keep us busy. It wasn't designed to make these orgs get bigger and actually bring Scientology to the world. 
And that was a real important moment of clarity for me because I'd been, you know, like I said, working for seven years on this. So that was a point where I really became very disillusioned with management and with, uh, and, you know, with what the Sea Org was doing with these orgs. Um, you know, all we wanted from them was money and stats and now, now, now. And they better comply and they better say, yes, sir, when they better be saluting with both hands. And that's all we cared about. And I cared about more than that, you know, but didn't matter. So, um, so, you know, that whole thing got dropped. Well, then, like I said, fast forward to about, you know, half a year, year later, and we're doing San Francisco. And I'm not in the best frame of mind anymore as a management person, but I'm still doing my job, and I'm still committed to trying to make something good happen out of all this ran random chaos and, and craziness. So then everybody disappears. Everybody goes up to San Francisco, and they're all working up there for about two and a half months, I think it was. Everybody was just up there. I was left back in the FOLO pretty much single-handing. I think I had like two people with me. And we were the ones who were running the whole West U.S. And that includes, I was actually doing um, the job of the, of the commanding officer of the CLO as well as the FOLO. So I was, doing, I was giving base briefings. I was attending numerous meetings every day. And I was still expected to be doing my A-Tech-A a, a job as well as run all the, west of the rest of the management functions. And like I said, this went on for this period of time. I didn't know how long it was going to go on for. And I was starting to feel a little nuts at this point. Because um, if, if you can, um, I, I'm, I'm probably not getting this across really well, but the amount of pressure that was on my shoulders, my head, on a daily basis, I was being, not only was I doing all these meetings, doing briefings, sending out telexes, sending out dispatches, trying to get the orgs to do their jobs. I was doing four times as many jobs as I'd been doing before as just the A-Tech-Aid. And I was having messengers, you know, these, these uh, teenage girls who had a whole bunch of authority and not a whole lot of smarts, coming to me and, and giving me directions and orders and, you know, rah, 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 uh, every day about this or that or the other thing. And, <laughs> and here's what happened. I started to get in a very, what I've come to learn was a very disassociative state. I started sort of watching myself perform my daily actions. And I was just kind of in this, I don't want to say haze, but I was kind of somewhere else. I was just sort of distancing myself from everything that was happening, if that kind of makes sense. Because if I didn't do that, if I didn't just kind of step out of myself, and I don't mean like some out-of-body experience where I've seen myself from the corner of the room or something. I just mean in my head, I was kind of distant from what was going on around me. And I had to do that pure, out of pure self-preservation. Because the number of things I was expected to do was be kind of like, okay, here's a good analogy. My regular job as the A-Tech aide was juggling four balls in the air. And I was getting pretty good at it. And I'd been doing it for a lot of years. And I, and I could learn how to do this juggling. And sometimes you could even throw five or six things in there. And I could keep up. But when this San Francisco thing happened, 
it was like I not only had to juggle these four balls, I had to juggle six balls, plus a chainsaw, and a machete, and a kitchen knife, and a gun. And those were all thrown into the mix. So I was having to keep all this stuff up in the air and somehow keep it all going and not get cut, not get killed in the process. And I just kind of, it became so crazy. There were so many demands that if I tried to, every time I tried to start handle one, someone would literally physically come see me and demand I stop what I'm doing and go handle their emergency. And then... You know, and then I would go work on that, and then it was another one, and then it was another one. There was no time off. There was no period of reflection. And for those who haven't picked up on this, the Sea Org was a full-time job. It was, you know, 8 in the morning until I wasn't going to bed until 1 or 2 in the morning every day. So I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. I was starting to look a little, you know, pallid. I was going to see the ethics officer uh, pretty much every couple days and saying to her, I'm not doing good. I was trying to get some help. You know, I didn't just keep it all locked in. I actually went to somebody whose job it was to help me with this stuff, not help me with the work, but help me. And I said, I'm really not keeping it together very well. I am, I am in a very, very small thread where I'm hanging by a very small thread right now. And I want to, I, I just keep thinking about how I want to leave. I want to just take off. This isn't good for me. I'm, I'm really not doing well. And she would just kind of, yeah, I know, but you're steady, Eddie. You're going to keep going. You're stable. You've been here for all these years. You're not going anywhere. Everything's going to be fine. And eventually we'll sort this out and sort of pat me on the head, give me a lollipop and send me on my way. That was pretty much effectively what she was doing. So I was getting no help whatsoever, and I was feeling more and more crazy. And, uh, and that's what I mean by this whole disassociative thing. I was kind of like I was watching myself be a little crazy, and I wasn't letting myself get crazy. I wasn't going to let myself go completely nuts, but I was right on the edge. There was just too much on my head. I reached the point where I had too much. Um, but I didn't reach that point quite yet. I was just kind of coping with it and dealing with it. Um, so finally, after about two and a half months, they all came back. San Francisco opened. Yay! It was all done. Everybody comes back. And they start picking up their jobs where they left off. Nobody, nobody thanks me. Nobody says, wow, it was amazing that you held all this together. Nothing. Just, you know, carry on as just another day in the Sea Org. Well, at this point... This disassociative state that I was in was sort of a permanent place of residence now. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, uh, it's not like things calmed down. Um, I, I wasn't doing, you know, five people's job anymore. I was just back to juggling the four balls now. But I was just not in a good place. And that's, you know, I know I'm not being great in describing all of this, but that's just the best I can do right now. And, uh, and I was finally going to get an auditing session. Now, in Scientology, when you're a Scientologist or a Sea Org member, uh, auditing is your relief, your place you can go where somebody will listen to you and you can sit there and, and they will ask you questions and it's all about you and you get to have 
kind of this really safe space where you get to go talk and, and, and get addressed problems that you have and deal with them. I mean, when you're getting sec checked, a security check, that's kind of a different thing. But auditing is supposed to be for you and it's supposed to help you and it's supposed to help sort stuff out. So I was really looking forward to getting an auditing session where I could de-stress and sort of unload and finally talk to somebody about all this because I didn't have anybody to talk to or unload on at all, you know, during this whole, this whole frantic period. Um, so I'm supposed to go in session the next day. And it's coming up on midnight. In order to go in session, I need to have enough sleep. You're supposed to be well-rested and well-fed to go in session. So, like I said, it's coming up on midnight. I'm about ready to get up and go so I can go to bed so I can go in session the next day. And what happens? I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and a guy comes in, one of these, you know, teenage Commodore's messenger people, very self-important, very egotistical people. And he says to me, you do not secure tonight until you have this piece of this, this uh, I don't want to use all the terminology, but basically I was supposed to get another trainee approved to go to FLAG in Clearwater for, for high-level auditor training. This was a big problem. It was a constant problem. It went on the entire time I was on the job. And getting people uh, trained at FLAG was part of my function to, because they would come back and be auditors in my tech divisions. So I was supposed to get this done, and I was not supposed to secure until it was done. Well, this, like I said, had been something I was working on all the time. And I knew there wasn't anybody to send, and I didn't have any solution of what to do, and I was now told I couldn't secure until I dealt with this. So basically, there wasn't going to be any auditing session the next day. There wasn't going to be any relief, and my life was going to continue to go down the drain. And that was the point that I snapped and I just said, okay, I'm done. And I very calmly got up. He left. I got up from my desk. And I walked out the back stairs of the CLO. And I went up the stairs. And I went out the back. And I just started walking. And it was midnight. I think it was a Sunday or a Monday. And I just went. And I was afraid of being caught by security, but nobody saw me. They didn't pick me up on the cameras that late at night or didn't notice or whatever. And I got away from the base and I just walked. And I thought, I grew up in Pasadena, California, right? Which is about, I don't know, you know, X number of miles away from Hollywood. So I wanted to get to Pasadena and I just wanted to get in a hotel and I just wanted to crash. Because that was, that was kind of what was in my mind as the thing I should do, is I should just get away for a while. And I didn't know how long and I should just, you know, chill. Because I was feeling really pretty crazy at this point. I just was not thinking well. <laughs> so, um, so I walked and I walked and I walked. And I wasn't paying a lot of attention to where I was walking. I thought I was walking in the right direction. But somehow I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. And I ended up in downtown L.A. And it was about 3, 4 in the morning by that point. I mean, I was, I was going at a pretty good clip. I was going on side streets mostly because I didn't want to be seen. I didn't know if security was doing the whole blow drill, if they noticed I was gone. 
if my wife would have alerted security or not that I never showed up at, at home. She didn't. She didn't notice until she woke up the next morning and she thought I wasn't there, so she thought I had just pulled an all-nighter. And uh, nobody really noticed that I was gone until the next morning, but I didn't know that. And I was very paranoid about getting caught. So I was avoiding, I was walking in the shadows, trying to stay out of the light and all that kind of stuff. Well, I made it all the way downtown LA. I was like, well, this was the wrong direction. <laughs> so I got some money out of, my, um, out of my bank account. I think I had about 150 bucks in the bank. Um, and I took it all. And uh, I, um, that was literally all the money I had in the world. And I um, then got on a, uh, then I walked again uh, towards Pasadena this time. I got my direction straightened out. And I come around 5.30 or so, I was pretty beat. I was definitely physically as well as emotionally and mentally exhausted. I was now physically exhausted as well. And so I finally got on a bus and the bus took me the rest of the way and I ended up in um, downtown Pasadena place I was very familiar with. I had grown up there. I crashed in a hotel for three days and I just slept. I mean, the first day I think I slept for 14 hours or something. I didn't, I literally, I, I went to bed at what, like 7 a.m. and I didn't wake up until that night. <laughs> and I watched some TV and, and, and felt pretty rested and I went and got some food and then I just kind of chilled. And the next couple days, I went around to my old kind of hangouts. I didn't meet with up with anybody. I didn't call anybody. I didn't, you know, know what was going on back at the base, and I didn't really care. I just needed to, to have this time to myself. Went to the library where I kind of, you know, had hung out a lot as a kid. And um, anyway, then after about three, I think it was three days, I called my parents, who had been divorced at this point, and um, so I called both of them separately, and they both advised that I do whatever, you know, they would back me up with whatever I wanted to do. But my dad said, um, you know, you really should go back and, and deal with that and handle it rather than just take off. And I really wish I hadn't listened to him. Uh, that was bad advice, but, um, but I took it because I was still married to my wife and I loved her and I didn't want to just abandon her the Sea Org at this point was something I wasn't so excited about anymore, but she was somebody I, you know, I was, I very, very much cared about. So, um, so getting sort of that signal from, from them, my mom, on the other hand, said, look, I'll support you in anything you want to do. But she did not say, look, just get on a bus and come home, you know, or come here uh, or anything like that. She, because she was nervous about, you know, what if I changed my mind? And then she said, well, you know, you should get out of there and I never wanted you to be there in the first place. And yes, please come home. If she said that and I changed my mind, then Scientology would make me disconnect from her and she didn't want that. So she was thinking strategically. Um, but, you know, I did, a, I did a, a video series where I talked with my mom about all of this. And, um, and we've since come to terms with, you know, the mistakes that we both made over, those, over that time. Because uh, that really would have been a really good opportunity to get the hell out of that whole messy, disgusting situation. But I, I didn't. I called the base and I said, okay, I'm here in Pasadena. Come get me. I want to come back. And so they did. And, uh, and I came back to the base um, and I got in a lot of trouble. I was, they didn't know where I'd gone. Nobody had a clue where I had gone or, or what had happened. 
So when I came back, I was treated as a security threat and I was under watch. There was somebody with me 24-7. I was trying to be good-natured and kind of, you know, that sort of thing, but nobody was really interested. They were just really, really pissed at me. And uh, they gave me some auditing sessions to sort some things out. Uh, but mostly I was in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and uh, the auditing sessions really didn't sort out much of anything either. Um, so I got a, com a committee of evidence, uh, which is a, a ethics justice action that you get in Scientology. And um, a pretty, pretty high level one, right? And I was in, like I said, I was in a lot of trouble. I got busted off my post, which was fine. I said, I'm not going back to the A-Tech aid job. I, you do whatever you want to with me. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm done with that. I'm not going to be in management anymore. So they posted me. They I ended up doing a lot of amends work and, you know, just basically spending my days trying to make up for all the damage I had done. And um, my head was still not in a really great place, by the way. <laughs> but at least I had gotten a little chill time. And, a, and that disassociated sort of feeling wasn't quite there as much anymore. I no longer felt like I was you know, sort of watching myself behave the way that I was. I was kind of back in my head and not in a really great place. I was still pretty depressed. I was still pretty anxious. Um, I never thought about it in those terms during that time, but that's that's really where I was at. I was, I was in a very, very depressive state and uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of pressure. So... Um, so I had relieved some of that pressure, but then in coming back, I was right back into it again. So I, I wasn't doing management anymore, and they put me on a job as a salesman, <laughs> which blew me away because I'd, I'd never done sales directly like that. I was now a reg. I was a registrar. And not only that, but I was a reg at AOLA, the Advanced Organization Los Angeles. So now it was my job to sell people OT levels. I had not done the OT levels. I didn't know anything about them. Uh, they were confidential. I couldn't know anything about them, except what the promo said. And the promo was all rah, rah, rah. There wasn't really a whole lot of substance to it. It was all just style. So I just kind of figured out how to talk to people about this stuff. And I, I did that for a while. And then they put me back into a, a, a tech area where I was a course supervisor. And eventually I ended up on the RPF. And um, at this point, back with my wife, back into the Sea Org, I still wanted to contribute to the overall mission of, of what this was all about and what was going on, but I didn't want to have these high-pressure jobs anymore. I couldn't deal with it. So I just sort of finagled my way. I mean, as a reg, I was under a lot of pressure to make money, but it turned out I was really good at it. <laughs> I started selling stuff and telling people about it, and because I knew all this stuff about auditing and training and, and the, what Scientology actually consists of, I could spin quite a yarn to people and sell them uh, stuff. I didn't even know what I was selling them, and I was selling them this stuff. So I, I kind of learned that I was pretty good at that, and it wasn't because I had a desire to. It was just forced into it by circumstances. So um, anyway, that kind of came and went, and other jobs came and went, and I ended up on the RPF. And here was the takeaway from that. I, I cannot even begin to encapsulate the experience of the RPF in, in a way that I can communicate to you what that three years was like, um, except to say it was not fun. There was no, there was no, I, there was no iota, uh, no instance of, of any fun occurring in that three-year period. 
it was hell. It was complete and total hell. Uh, for the first month, I was actually right back in that place, uh, that disassociative sort of place I was in before. I mean, I kind of had this year of, of, of salesmanship and then doing this course supervisor stuff and, and, and other functions I was doing, but I was still not in a really good place. And, um, and landing on the RPF was like the lowest of the low of the Sea Org, and suddenly there I was. I, I was in prison. You know, and I'm pretty sure people who end up in prison regret their decisions, think a lot about those decisions, think a lot about their life, but at the same time, they're in prison. Now they have to watch out for all kinds of things. They have to learn this new environment. They have to acclimate to it. And it's not a fun environment. You're, you're literally behind bars. We were too. Uh, there, were not, there were not jail cell barred you know, doors locking us into our room at night. But that is the condition we were living in. We could not go talk to anybody outside of the RPF. Um, we could not associate with anybody. There were no holidays. There was no time off. Every single day was the same as every other day. There was no, there was no weekends. There was no holidays. It was, it, it, we, we just, we all, the end joke in the RPF was it was every day was Groundhog Day because that's what it was like. The, the work that we were doing all day would change up from one day to another. One day we'd be, um, so, you know, sandblasting walls. The next day we'd be demo, demolishing uh, a building. The next day we'd be planting stuff. And the next day we'd be setting up for an event. I mean, it was just a hodgepodge of work that we were given. But the whole point of the RPF is to get through a series of steps that you're required to do, which are auditing steps. You have to work with somebody else and get them through those steps and they get you through them. And by doing that program of steps, you complete the program. And you're supposed to be a rehabilitated Sea Org member. Back in, you know, ready to go with the program, focused, directed, you know, just rah. Uh, I'm, I'm gung-ho again about Scientology and the Sea Org, and I'm ready to go. You know, that's supposed to be the end result of the RPF. Well, <laughs> what happened with me is I did the program, and I honestly did the program. I, I did the entire thing from beginning to end. And I, and I worked my ass off to get through that thing because I was pretty disillusioned with the Sea Org, but I still loved my wife. And I still loved the idea of Scientology. And I still believed that everything that L. Ron Hubbard said was true. I didn't have reasons to doubt him at this point. I had reasons to be frustrated and upset and disillusioned with the organization of Scientology, but not the subject of Scientology. So I did the, all this program, I did all this auditing, it took me three years to get through it, and, um, and at the end of it, I was no longer in that disassociative state anymore. I no longer felt crazy. In fact, I felt more rational than I ever felt before because what happened on the RPF is I confessed to every single bad crime or act or thing I'd ever done in my entire life as well as in my past lives going back millions of years. So I just made up all kinds of stuff, not knowing I was making it up, but that's, I was just answering the questions and this is what was coming up, so must be true. You know, if, they, if you're at, in an auditing session and you are asked, uh, you know, was there a time you stole an apple? And you say, yeah, sure, when I was five, I stole the apple and I ate it and blah, blah, blah. And then they say, okay, well, is there an earlier similar time you ate an apple? 
and you go, well, I, you know, gee, I don't, no, not really. And they go, well, take a look. Is there an earlier time? And you start and you imagine a picture of an apple and Johnny Appleseed and Tom Sawyer or something. And, and you're back in the 1800s, you know, stealing an apple. I mean, that's kind of how it happens in an auditing session. You go, well, I guess this must be true because this is what I'm picturing right now. And you, and you talk about it, right? And you, can, you get that, you know, off your chest and, and you're looking for the needle on the e-meter to, to do particular things and, and then you can move on. So I was answering tons and tons of these kinds of questions, not apples, but much more serious questions like, have you ever cheated on your spouse? Have you ever lied to your parents? Have you ever done a bad job on your work on purpose because you didn't care about it? You know, all kinds of questions about all of my life, um, all aspects of it from my, my childhood forward, my parents, my wife, uh, my jobs, everything, animals, pets I'd had, you know, all of it. So, um, so after doing all of that, I felt in a really clean, kind of better place. I'd had, you know, I mean, the mentally I mean now. I mean, physically I was, you know, pretty exhausted most of the time. Um, from all the work we were doing, and I'd lost a lot of weight. I had gained some muscle mass from all the work we were doing. So physically, I was in pretty good shape. Um, and within the, you know, Scientology framework of that was still, you know, that, that was what my thoughts and, and ideas and everything wrote, you know, revolved around, I felt like I had cleaned myself up. I had taken responsibility for every bad thing I'd ever done. I had done this extensive program the most extensive program you can do in Scientology, the RPF. And I now saw, but here was, the, here was the difference between what happened to me and what happened and what was supposed to happen, is I now very clearly saw that the Sea Org was pretty crazy. And I didn't have any doubts about it anymore. Before the RPF, I thought it was all me. I thought every bad thing I was seeing and every bad thing that was going on and all the pressure and everything else that had been going on, I thought that was my weakness, my bad, my inability to deal with the situations that I was being presented with. I had not made it go right. I had not done my duty. That was my, that was my frame of mind, and that was one of the things that was making me so crazy, was I had impossible demands, literally impossible demands. No one could live up to fulfilling all of them, and I was castigating myself, beating myself down, because I could not live up to those expectations. So once I did this program, I saw so clearly on reviewing my entire life and everything that was going on and everything that was going on with the RPF and with the Sea Org, it became very clear to me that I wasn't the crazy one, that the Sea Org was the crazy place. and that it was the only place that was doing the job that I felt needed to be done, but it was crazy. P people were acting nuts in the Sea Org, all these unusual crazy orders and demands and cross orders. I just saw, it was like I finally got this really clear picture of how nuts it was, but I didn't really feel like I had much of a choice but to carry on in it because I still believed in Scientology, you see. And the mission of saving the planet from itself and saving everybody from themselves, from their reactive minds and all the other stuff that I didn't, you know, even know about at that point. I didn't know anything about Xenu or 
I didn't know about any of that stuff. So I still believed in the mission and I was dedicated, you know, and I didn't, I mean, what else was I going to go do anyway? You know, I didn't have any plan B in place and I didn't want to, again, I didn't want to leave my wife and all of that. So I stuck with it and I finished the RPF and then I um, got posted at Bridge Publications, uh, making books. Did that for a number of months. I think it was six to six or seven months or so. And then I got out and I started doing some recruitment. And this was a real turning point for me in my Sea Org career and in my life. Because what happened was I got myself out with, and I was always going out with somebody else, but we would go out on these projects. And I got to go out away from LA, away from the craziness of the base, all the orders and cross orders and all that, I didn't have to deal with any of that anymore. All I had to do was go out and get a Sea Org member and bring them back. <laughs> I was doing recruitment for the Sea Org. And what I was doing is I was going out to the orgs around the West US, all the orgs I knew, all the staff I knew from all those years, they knew me, I knew them. I was on pretty good terms with most of them, at least it seemed that way. I mean, for a Sea Org member who's a pushy, bossy bastard, I was on good terms with them, you know. I don't want to paint myself in too good of a light here because I know that I was cruel and mean to some of those staff uh, when I had certain pressures on me, and that was not cool. You know, I, I acted in a very uncool way in a lot of ways just by the pressures and duties of the Sea Org. But I did my best to try to help the orgs out, help the staff out. And after having done the RPF, I wasn't nearly as bad as I had been in the past in terms of how I was mistreating the staff and stuff. I didn't yell and scream at people and I didn't like make a fuss about stuff and I didn't try to, you know, bulldoze my way over people as much as I, you know, as much as I could. I wanted to be on good terms with them. So, um, and they appreciated that. They actually, I, w I was noted by a lot of the staff and a lot of the orgs I went to that year that um, I was really helpful and I was really, you know, a different kind of Sea Org member than what they usually experienced. So they would tell me that. So I, I, I'm not, that's not my opinion. That was what they told me. So um, anyway, so I was recruiting people to come into the Sea Org. And basically what the, the, the pattern I kind of got into was it would take me about a month I would go to like Seattle, for example, and I would get a staff member who was in Seattle to come to the Sea Org. I would replace him on his job and I'd send him on his way and I would go back to LA and then I would go out to another org and I'd find another person and I'd get them, send them to the Sea Org, replace them and you know, everybody wins and everybody was very happy and that was going along and I was kind of going like gangbusters and that was going fine. But the other thing that was happening was I was finally seeing the outside world for real. And, you know, after all these years in the Sea Org, all those years on staff, I was finally off the base and I was going around to Seattle and uh, Portland and Twin Cities and Oh gosh, where else did I get people from? Different places in California, the Bay Area, I went up to San Francisco a couple times. And I was interacting with regular people from time to time, you know? I was going out and having lunch and dinner and, at restaurants and stuff, because that's how you, when you're out there on projects, that's what you do. And so I was beginning to see that, the, that there was a big wide world out there, and there were a lot of people in it. And I started wondering to myself, 
We talk about, in Scientology, clearing the planet, getting all these people out here into Scientology. And there's millions of them out there. And there aren't that many of us. How are we going to do this? And the, the actual numbers and the, and the, the physical reality of, of what the job was that we were saying to ourselves that we were going to be doing was becoming very real to me. Like suddenly I was like, it was not just a numbers thing. I, you know, when you're in a basement office <laughs> doing management, you know, people aren't people. They're just calculations. They're just statistics. They're just numbers. But when you go out in the big wide world and you start looking around, you go, no, these are people. And every single one of these people needs Scientology and we have to get to every one of them? Like, we're not even... We're not, even, we're not even scratching the surface. There's not even a scratch on the surface of this planet. We're doing nothing. We're not making any effect here. You know, we've got, what, 20, a, a big course room with lots of students has 50 people at once in it. I mean, that was a really big deal. If you had, a, if you had an org that had a classroom that had 50 people in it at a time, man, whoa, that place is booming, man. That place is going. Well, you look at a population of San Francisco, you know, or Mountain View or Los Gatos or something, and you're looking at, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. We're not even, we're not going to get to any of these people in 10 lifetimes, in 20 lifetimes. And that started becoming very real to me. I started seeing it, and I was like, I started asking a few questions. I was like, wow, man, there's there's a lot of people out here. How are we going to do this? And Everybody I talked to who was in the Sea Org or in Scientology just sort of, well, you know, it was just, it was just thought-stopping cliches. Oh, we'll get to them all. Oh, yeah, it's not a problem. We're going to clear the planet. Oh, yeah, this lifetime for sure. They'll get the message. They'll figure it. We'll, we'll, we'll get to them. You know, nobody was really dealing with this question. And to me, this was a fairly important question because this was my life. This was all I was working on, you know. So to find out... It was kind of similar to that moment I mentioned earlier where I suddenly realized management was not about expanding these orgs and, and doing whatever it took to make that happen. Management was about being crazy. And suddenly I was seeing that the numbers that we were talking about and at, at every event and how we were impinging on the world and David Miscavige would stand on stage and say we were taking over and, you know, clearing the planet was becoming a reality every single day. Suddenly those words were very, very empty to me. And I saw that we were not at all dealing with reality when we were giving when we were giving all every other sea org member the big ego boost about how great we were and how wonderful this all was we were not that wonderful we were not doing that good and we were in fact pathetic in terms of our ability to change conditions on the planet if that was our job and it was then we were failing miserably and i started really thinking about this and i was like wow this is a this is a problem you know, well, like everything else, you know, you just kind of push it aside and get on with the program. But I was, you know, it was it was sitting there and I already knew the Sea Org was pretty crazy. So the Sea Org was not mobilized or organized to get this job done. And I could see that. But, you know, what else was I going to do? 
So I did the recruitment, and then I did um, other projects and missions after that. And I was basically, from that point forward, most of my time was spent out in the real world, not on the base in Los Angeles. And that was a very, very important thing for me to need to experience because it got my head out of that whole crazy game and into the real world. And I was able to interact with public Scientologists and staff members, and they were a hell of a lot easier to deal with than other Sea Org members. Because, you know, Sea Org members are zealots. They're, you know, they're the, the, the elite of Scientology, which really means they're the most fanatical of Scientologists. That's who the Sea Org is. They're a bunch of fanatics. I was one of them. I know. So my fanaticism had been coming down and down and down over these years because of these things I'd been seeing. Other people in the Sea Org were not seeing things the way I was seeing them. They weren't experiencing the same things I was experiencing. So... They, so when I would talk to them, I'd have to be sort of, you know, trepidatious. I'd have to be a little careful, a little cautious about voicing my concerns because if I said too much, they would write me up and then I would be in trouble and I didn't want that to happen. So I was cautious with, my, with voicing my concerns and I eventually realized I, I couldn't really much say much of anything. So then the final straw here was... Um, when I was on this project in Twin Cities, and I've talked about this many times, where I was working on getting people back into this Scientology. I was, I, they had opened up the new Twin Cities Church of Scientology, where it exists now, in this old science, kids' science museum building. It's huge, 80,000 square foot building. It's gigantic. And there's, Twin Cities is a podunk, nothing place. There's literally 100 Scientologists in a five-state area <laughs> around Minnesota, Minneapolis, right? So, um, so there was not a lot of business there. And, um, and I was noticing that uh, with the craziness of the Sea Organ stuff, we were there to get this place going, but the orders we were receiving were all about money and, and just getting money from these people. It was not about selling books, getting people in for auditing or for training, or anything. nobody really cared about that. It was just money, 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 money. And I started thinking to myself, man, really? It's just that blatant now? We're just about the money? Yeah, we were. So, um, so then, I, then I had that, that, this epiphany moment where I realized that in order to talk to public Scientologists, and convince them to come back into the org and do more services, I had to lie to them. I had to tell them things that, you know, I had to misrepresent the, the cost of services or, um, you know, what had happened. If they had had a poor service situation, they'd paid money and they hadn't gotten some auditing or they hadn't gotten satisfactory training or something, they weren't happy with it, I would bend over backwards to help them out and, and try to sort that out. But I realized that I was also having to, you know, bend the truth quite a bit because I could never, I wasn't supposed to make Scientology look bad in handling their concerns. And sometimes we had screwed up in really, really big ways. Not me personally, but the organization. And in order to get somebody back, you have to tell them, yeah, we screwed up. But I could only, I could only go so far with that. I couldn't refund their money if they had, had been ripped off and some of them had been. I couldn't, you know, there were things I couldn't do. And so that was where some of the lies and stuff started coming in because I still had to figure out how to get them back in and, 
it was just kind of a big, you know, it was, it was difficult. So, um, so once I, once it hit me that I was lying, not bending the truth, not fibbing, but actually lying, I went, wow, I've really sunk to that level now. You know, that's my life is I'm lying to people to convince them to come into Scientology. After we screw them over, I'm kind of getting them back in here and I'm not at all sure that we're not going to screw them over again and again and again because that happened a few times. Again, not because I was screwing these people over, but because that's just how the organization is set up. It's set up to take your money, never give it back to you, and if you don't do the services, well, okay, there's the door, bye. You know, they try to get you back in. That's what I was doing for, for some of that time. But if you don't come in, it's no big deal. And um, if you do come in, they just want to sell you more. They don't want it. They're not so interested in delivering what you've already purchased as much as they are in trying to get more, extract more money from you. Because the demands for money are just insane in that group. It's constant. It's a constant demand. So, um, so seeing that as clearly as I did, that was finally my breaking point after all these years of all this stuff that had happened. And I'm, of course, this is a summary. I mean, if I were to go back and write a book or something about all this, it would be extensive. I mean, there would be a lot more filling in the gaps here, but I, I think you kind of get the progression of what happened. And I finally realized the Sea Org was, I was done with the Sea Org. I needed to, I needed to leave because this was not making me happy. I was making other people happy, but nobody was seeing to my concerns or my needs at all. And, um, and I just was not, you know, not satisfied in my, and I realized that my life at this point was half over. I mean, I was, I was 42 years old at this point and I was not happy. And I, uh, said to myself, okay, I'm going to leave the Sea Org. And eventually I did. By the end of 2012, I was out. I've told that story enough times that I think you guys know it. Um, and I got, uh, in 2013, I moved back to Twin Cities, which nobody was happy with uh, from the Sea Org. They were very, very unhappy with me for doing that because they thought that since my last mission in the Sea Org had been in Twin Cities, and then I left, and then I showed up, and I'm not a Sea Org member anymore. This was a bad thing, right? I was, I was black PRing, quote-unquote, the Sea Org. I was presenting a bad image of the Sea Org because I left. So clearly, must something, you know, I, must, I must be showing that the Sea Org is bad because if it was so great, why would I leave, right? So that really pissed a bunch of people off. And they said, you can't go into the org. You can't be friends with any Scientologists. You can't you know, do any of these normal things that normal Scientologists get to do because you're a former Sea Org member and you suck, basically was the message. And I wasn't happy about that. I understood it. I was patient with it, but I, I wasn't happy with it. And having already seen a bunch of things on the internet, previously I'd seen bits and pieces of stuff. Now I had full internet access. And I was an inquisitive person, so I went down the rabbit hole and learned all the awful, horrible truths about L. Ron Hubbard and his life, David Miscavige, and how he was beating on staff and doing lots of other things. And I, like I said, I'd heard some of that stuff before, but I'd sort of 
reconciled in my head that, well, David Miscavige doesn't really beat on his staff because if he did, then how could he produce all these wonderful things? But then I started realizing he wasn't really producing all these wonderful things. <laughs> and once I saw that pretty clearly, I went, wait a second, maybe this, maybe these guys are saying the truth. Maybe he really did beat on them. And then I learned all the lies, and then it made total sense to me that he was beaten on his staff because what else would he do? He's a, he's a you know, megalomaniac nutcase. So, of course, that's what he's doing. And everything just kind of fell into place, and I um, was no longer suffering from any illusions about Scientology anymore. And at that point, I was ready to get out, and by the end of 2013, I was totally out. So that is the sequence of events that happened that led me progressively one step after another all the way out of the Sea Org. I have always said half-jokingly that I am a slow learner. Um, it should not have taken me that long to get out, um, but I was raised with this, and that's really my only excuse in looking back on it. Like, why would I hold on to these beliefs? Why would I put up with so much abuse? Because I was told that it was necessary, and I believed it. I was told over and over and over again that it is a tough, hardcore group, the Sea Org. It's not supposed to be easy. And, um, and, you know, and, and I wanted that elite status. I wanted to be considered one of the good guys. And I wanted to be one of the people who was making a difference in the world. And if I had to suffer through a whole bunch of crap in order to make the world a better place, I was willing to do that. Um, and I don't, you know, and I, I, that sounds very altruistic, and, and it is very altruistic. I mean, that was what motivated me. And I don't say that to, as an ego boost, it's just where my head was at. Um, and I thought, and I was sold on, you know, from a very young age that Scientology was the only thing, the only thing that was ever going to be capable of making a difference in this world. So when I then started seeing the big wide world and seeing that people were getting along just fine without Scientology, you know, got those wheels turning. And, uh, and eventually when I finally left altogether and really immersed myself in the real world, I saw all the, well, not all, but I saw a lot of the good and bad and ups and downs and everything else that is life. And as I've been acclimating to the real world over the last five or six years, I have had, certainly had plenty of ups and downs um, and learned that the world is not all good, not all bad. It just is what it is. Uh, it's kind of what we make it, you know, as far as our life, our own lives go. And uh, that's what I've, you know, that's where I'm at now uh, as far as uh, recovering from Scientology and moving on from it. So now I finally have something I can refer people to here in this podcast for those of you out there who have ever wondered what's the whole story, that's pretty much the whole story. Um, at least as, as, as summary easily as I can relate to you within an hour or so period of time. I hope that this was uh, somewhat interesting and informative uh, and hopefully a little entertaining. Uh, and I appreciate you guys coming around and listening to, to all of me, this uh, this ranting of mine uh, during this particular podcast. But like I said, a lot of people have asked me about this. And I've always put, I've always talked about certain parts of this story, but I was trying to make a broader or bigger point, or I was trying to make other points around, you know, the story. So I never really told the whole thing from beginning to end. 
So I hope uh, I hope that this satisfies uh, that question of how did you get out of Scientology? And uh, thanks very much for coming around and listening. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And if you are of a mind to do so, especially now that we are in the holiday season, I would really, really appreciate any support you can throw my way, either through Patreon by signing up for a continuing um, support through Patreon or just through PayPal or anything like that. Your contributions and your support are what allow me to do this at all. And I really, really appreciate it. So thanks a lot, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.